This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hey everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast. Uh, I wanted to record this quick message letting people know that I'm going to be away for roughly a month to two months tops doing promotion for my brand new book, Everything Mind, which is coming out October 1st and published by Sounds True. And thank you, Sounds True, for that. Uh, but in my absence, I want to run some older interviews that I did in 2014. The, these are a series of what I was calling uh, Indie Spiritualist Skype sessions that I was doing on my website, theindiespiritualist.com. These are a series of video interviews that I had done, uh, which I have transferred into audio format. So apologies that the quality is not exactly up to par. However, it's definitely listenable, and the people I have as guests, I think, are worthy of your time. I hope, at least after you listen to them, that you feel they are. So anyways, I just want to say a quick hello, and again, my apologies for my absence over the next month to two months, um, but in that time, I sincerely hope you enjoy these interviews. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the IndieSpiritualist.com. Uh, I'm joined today with uh, Diane Hamilton. Diane has been a practitioner of meditation for almost 30 years. She began her studies at Naropa University in 1983 with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and became a Zen student of Genpo Roshi's in 1997. In 2003, she received ordination as a Zen monk with her husband, Michael Zimmerman, and received a Dharma transmission from Roshi in 2006. Diane facilitates Big Mind, Big Heart, a process developed by Genpo Roshi to help elicit the insights of Zen in Western audiences. She's worked with Ken Wilber and the Integral Institute since 2004. Diane, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And I should show everyone before we get started, this is Diane's wonderful book, which I really appreciate. It's called Everything is Workable. The funny thing, Diane, is... Um, I'd asked people on my own Facebook page, you know, what they're reading currently. This was probably about two weeks ago. And mm -hmm. someone had mentioned your book. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm interviewing Diane in two weeks. So it was, uh, it's great that it's out there. People are enjoying it and appreciating it. Um, yeah, thank you very much. It's, it, it's, uh, 
it was kind of wonderful to do. And I really have to give a lot of credit to Shambhala Publications, mm-hmm. particularly to David O'Neill, who was my editor, because he approached me about putting it together. And then he was such a incredible, both, both supportive and very, very precise in terms of his editing. So it was a kind of a wonderful experience. I've never awesome. done it before, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard great things about the guys at Shambhala. So that's wonderful. Yeah. You had a good experience. Yeah, I had a great one. Cool. So I wanted to start towards the beginning, and I tend not to start on a somber note, but um, I think this is a really (laughs) important part of your story. So you write that it was at the age of 17 that you experienced, um, well, it was very heavy life circumstances where seven of your friends died. And Mm. well, again, I don't want to bring up painful memories. um, Oh, it's fine. But it seems like that was a huge catalyst for you in your Mm -hmm. spiritual endeavor. And I'd love if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that and and, um, your initial experiences and and stages in your spiritual journey. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Well, you know, when we explore this question of, you know, what prompted our seeking, because those of us who, who have been spiritual seekers, some people, you know, just suddenly started to wonder who they were, or some people, uh, I know a friend of mine who's a spiritual teacher, she just was sitting at her desk one day and suddenly felt enveloped in this quality of unconditional love. She just dropped out of the sky and she spent pretty much the rest of her life integrating and, and working with that experience. And for me, it was maybe a little bit more like the the story of the Buddha himself, or when he crossed the boundaries of his conventional life and, and encountered birth, old age, sickness, and death. And, you know, that's what catapulted him into, into his search and his eventual awakening. And for me, I was, um, you know, going along as a an American girl. I was in I grew up in the West. I'm kind of a cowgirl. I rode horses a lot. I think that's partly how I learned to meditate was just really long afternoons by myself. And when I was 17, um I had a, there were a series of of incidents and accidents that occurred. So four of my good friends were killed in a light plane. Um uh they were it was I think it was a Friday the 13th in February. Wow. And they, they, uh, one of my friends had just received his pilot's license and three other others piled in the plane with him. And they went up in a nearby canyon to look at elk. And because he was an inexperienced pilot, everybody kind of surmises that he just didn't gain altitude properly. And basically they crashed into the mountain. And they found the plane uh, two months later because there was a snowstorm after that. So there was this period also where they were lost. Jeez. Yeah, and then believe it or not, about one week after those funerals in April, the sister of one of my friends was killed in an automobile accident. So that happened. Another friend uh, died in a knife fight, believe it or not. that he, Someone had stolen, uh, stolen his cassette back in those days, an eight-track cassette player, yeah. and he, he knew who it was. It turns out that it was somebody who'd just been released from prison periodically. So he went into the restaurant where this person was working in the back as a cook. Believe it or not, my, my friend was 18 years old. The guy ran to the back of the kitchen, grabbed it, a knife, came out and plunged it into my friend's heart, who was 18 years old. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is, yeah, wow. <laughs> Yeah, it was just incredible. And then the final one, believe it or not, was uh, a friend who was older. He was one of my very close friends' older brother. And he, believe it or not, committed suicide, and he was a chemist, and he did it by taking cyanide. Wow. Yeah. So these were like, you know, within that very brief period of time, just like, 
trauma and loss and ambiguity and, you know, violence and despair, you know, just kind of all these flavors that, that sort of got thrown up in my field. Jeez, 17. Very, very time. Yeah, it was 17. And it just, you know, it was one of the, those, I mean, you know, there's so many people around the world that have endured really, really difficult things. Right. Um, but for my spiritual opening, I just had to reconcile myself to those events. Like, mm. what does it mean? What does it mean that people can end their life? What does it mean that people can be murdered when they're only 18 years old? Mm. You know, that kind, those kinds of questions. So that's really what prompted my search was that series of events. And, and I love that you mentioned that uh, those were, you know, those questions, that those are the deeper questions that bring a lot of us to the spiritual path. I was speaking with another author the other day. Her name's Sarah Beek, wonderful writer. And we were discussing how a lot of people, at least most people that I've met, don't come to the spiritual path because their life is filled with rainbows and unicorns. Right. A lot of the times it is heavy stuff, you know, right. existential questions that we just need answering. So, yeah. um, That's right. But yeah, I, 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 thank you for sharing so uh, openly about that because it's, it's important for people to hear, you know, these things mm -hmm. happen, but there can be grace through that. Um, mm -hmm. But so... So if you can walk me through a little bit then your, your initial uh, exploration of spirituality, and then we're going to get into your book in a second, but did you find yeah. that Buddhism right off the bat was what resonated with you, or did you, did you seek out different lineages or books, or, or what did that look like for you? Well, the, it prompted the questions, and, uh, you know, so I, I guess you could say that I began a period of, of questioning, of searching, of thinking, and, you know, for me, I went towards the Western philosophical tradition first, and I became a student of philosophy, and interestingly enough, at the time, you know, uh, Banke, uh, Zen Master Banke says that until you close the gap between subject and object, the scratch doesn't get itched, mm -hmm. or the itch doesn't get scratched, right. or the itch becomes the scratch, whatever it is. <laughs> so I actually had that experience that I didn't have the kind of guidance in the Western philosophical tradition that that subject-object gap could be condensed. I'm sure it exists there somewhere. It's certainly within the mystical tra traditions in the West, it exists. So I always felt uneasy, even though I was taking it in and doing my best to work with these philosophical perspectives. And then I was drawn to, I think, uh, directly to the work of Chogyam Trungpa. And that was in about 1982. Um, so then I decided to go to Naropa Institute partly out of practicality. I had a degree in philosophy and literature, and I needed to be employed. So I made a decision to go into to psychology, mm -hmm. but I was drawn to Naropa Institute. I wanted a more experiential education. And what I was calling experiential in a certain way was really the impulse to want kind of body and mind to come together, you might say. So through the practice and through Chogyam Trungpa's teachings, my first experiences of, you know, non-duality, and that is just so relieving to the body-mind. So for me, it's kind of been you know, like every person, I've had ins and outs and ups and downs right. with this practice, but it, 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 it answered an existential uh, longing in me that, you know, now at this stage I can fill it out with Sufi teaching and the Christian mystics and sure. lessons from Kabbalah, whatnot. But, but it, it provides a real, Zen particularly, a real basis for my spiritual life. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, thank you very much, Diane. Yeah, you're welcome. So, you start the book off with a chapter titled, Conflict is Good News. And there's a particular sentence that I appreciated. And you wrote, to learn to transform conflict, 
we must let go of the notion that there is that something or someone is wrong or bad. Love mm-hmm. that. And I would love for you if you can discuss that a little bit and elaborate uh, further on that for our viewers. Well, one of the things that is very important is that my book, uh, you know, I was influenced by Chogyam Trungpa's Buddhist teachings early and then my own teacher, Genpo Roshi. And then I was introduced to Ken Wilber, as you know, in about 2004. He's had incredible impact on my way of seeing and my way of working with myself. Um, So in an evolutionary context, human beings were probably the most dangerous animal to one another. Mm. In fact, I've heard some statistic like you were more likely to be killed by another human being than you were by another animal in nature. So, so just because of our predatory and warring histories, conflict is serious business. You know, yeah. conflict has the potential to be extremely dangerous. So people's first response, if the nervous system, the reptilian brain is stimulated, the amygdala fires, cortisol is dumped into the body, adrenaline. So all of those sensations say this shouldn't be happening. Yeah. And they, they say it, they, they give us that information for very, very good reason. Problem is, is in most of the conflicts that we're in, our life is not at stake. You know, it's it, it's just simply an evolutionary um, vestige, I guess you could say, that organizes us in a particular way, but that organization keeps us from actually becoming very skillful. So some of us tend to mute those sensations. Some of us withdraw and react to those sensations. Some of us have a more aggressive response. But the first thing to do is to work with recognizing the feeling state in the body whenever you're in a conflict and realize that the old part of who you are is online. There's a threat in the system. It's doing its job. But, but what's cool is that the neocortex shuts down when the reptilian brain is stimulated yeah. and when the amygdala fires. But by witnessing, which is what we use in meditation, by witnessing these sensations, we actually can reinterpret them. So we can rewire the brain so that the neocortex can stay online while we're feeling threatened and and all of that. So um, the next step, once you've felt the sensation, is to relinquish your idea about the conflict. Because inevitably you're thinking something generally about somebody else. Mm. Something's doing something wrong. Somebody's doing something, you know, inevitably there's a pushing away almost of that. So if you can kind of release that... um, then you open the possibility for it to be worked with creatively. Mm-hmm. But you've got to deal with the body, and you have to deal with the thoughts. Yeah, and thanks for saying that. I, um, I'm a recovering addict myself, mm-hmm. and you just discussing about our old reptilian brain and how the neocortex shuts down. Um, I was reading John Dupree's book, uh, Integral Recovery, which shines a great light on that for people in my situation. But it's not just for people in, in recovery from a drug. Like you said, it's, it's our mm-hmm. natural state of being. So that's... Okay. Um, certainly very important and and it's great to see people shining a light on that and bringing you know bringing that to the forefront of an integral part of our practice i know you talk a lot about shadow work and um Mm -hmm. and that's very important as well so thanks for touching on that yeah yeah my pleasure yeah it's a long-winded answer i apologize no i actually i prefer those (laughs) i would i i don't like the the soundbitey answer so thank you for for that i appreciate it um okay uh so you also talk about encountering fear in the scary yet exciting chapter. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to share another quote from that you'd written. If we can learn to relate with fear directly, not trying to get rid of it, but becoming aware of what it looks like, tastes like, and feels like in our mind and body, we can develop fearlessness. Mm-hmm. That's another one I would love for you. If you could talk a bit about that as well, that'd be great. 
Um, if you think about it, one of the, the, what we do in practice is we move from identification with what we might call the egoic self. And if you think about the egoic self, it's this separate body, this separate set of strivings, this separate set of aspirations. So there's a lot of stress when we're coming from the egoic state of mind. Mm -hmm. And practice really helps us shift, first of all, relax that uh, so that we can open up to greater identity and therefore have greater fluidity in our lives. Now, of course, what we're going to encounter at a certain point is some kind of fundamental fear, yeah. right? Because the egocentric self is stressed, but if you look even deeper, the egocentric self is in a state of fear because we're separate from reality. Not only are we separate, but we have to ensure our safety. So, you know, it's up to me to make sure I survive. So there, there's just a very deep level at which each of us is afraid to some degree of existence precisely because we're afraid of non-existence. We're afraid of death. And so really learning how to, particularly in sitting meditation, become sensitive to what fear states are like in the body. Um, you know, they're, they're interesting, at least in my mind, because sometimes it could be just like simple anxiety. You can feel your heart rate increase. You can feel your, your neck flush or a cramping in your solar plexus. But other times, fear takes on almost a, a like, it's very hard to even know what it is. It's, you, and sometimes it takes on a quality of even terror or dread. But there's really nothing to kind of get a hold of other than this feeling of great unease. And every time you go to try to note where it is in your body it sort of you know eludes you in a way yeah. so so learning how to make contact with these different styles of fear these different qualities of fear becoming familiar with them then basically you can start to ask yourself the question well what is it that's aware of the fear right what is actually being aware of the fear so this space of awareness this kind of un conditioned quality of awareness that actually can become aware of fear can hold, if you will, or at least there's a space for the fear to arise. So the identification from the fear itself to the space with around the fear, there's just so much more room. And then gradually what happens is that the fear just kind of, you know, the body mind is, is quick. You think about animals in the uh, wild, they get chased, you know, prey, spend your whole day as a rabbit. you got a lot of fear rushing through the body. So the, the body can restabilize relatively quickly, but in our case, only when we do it consciously. Because otherwise, we're unconsciously feeding it with all kinds of cognition. Oh, yeah. Does Love. that make sense? Okay. Perfect sense. It's something I've actually worked with, and I've been okay. able through the years to go from I am angry to I am aware of anger arising in my experience, you know, or I'm yeah. aware of depression. I am not depressed. So yeah. you, like you said, that spaciousness, it's what a, yeah. what a relief that is, yeah. you know, it, we still, we still deal with these things, but yeah. just that little gap, it makes a mm -hmm. world of difference. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I said earlier, we're starting to rewire the brain and then that we're starting to actually be able to influence the regulation of the nervous system. So if you've had a big, adrenaline dump or cortisol, mm -hmm. it's going to take some time for that to get processed through your body. Yeah. I think that's one thing people need to understand is that 
the more that you understand how the neurophysiology works, the more you see that once you've had an adrenaline rush, it's going to take some time for that to get processed. But still, that witnessing awareness makes all the difference. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yes. Seconded. Witness. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I have two more book-specific questions for you. Okay. Um, sure. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you all day about it, but I know your time is limited. So... Um, I appreciated the epigraph, actually. Very simple, but the began your three perspectives, three truths chapter. This is something I've discussed quite a bit with people. And it okay. simply read, there are three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And that was quoted to unknown. Um, mm-hmm. That is such a simple but profound statement, you know, for people to really take into consideration. There's my experience of what's happening, there's yours, and then there's the impartial experience. So, again, if you could talk a bit about that, I'd love it. Well, you know, what we discover is that when we make distinctions, we can actually have a more whole experience. Mm. So, when we make a distinction between the first person I, the second person you, and the third person it, those are, as, as Ken Wilber likes to point out, those are the three perspectives framed by language. So, we're always participating with those three fundamental perspectives. The problem is we don't know it. Mm. So, um, you know, as a, as a woman, I'm very much in the business of telling men how they feel. Right. So <laughs> you are upset and you don't know it. You know, like I move into second person and close my view onto you. And inevitably that feels like an oppression. Yeah. So just to notice that, wait, I am noticing at least that it, from where I'm standing, it seems like you're mad. That's a very different statement, right. you know, than to say you are. Yeah. Or, for instance, we conflate, conflate our first-person truths with third-person all the time. So, someone will say, uh, we, we're in a retreat right now, so someone will say, I really enjoyed this part of the talk. And someone else will say, oh, the discussion of Sangha practice was the best part. Mm-hmm. And they move to third-person. Well, what happens when you express that in third person is you automatically set up disagreement because other people will have a different point of view. Then the question becomes, well, if you're going to use a third person discourse, you've got to have verifications because third person requires that. So you would have to maybe take a poll, you know, but even then you're still in the realm of the subjective, you know. So, so you know, science is built, empiricism is built on that third person perspective and we rely on it for many, many things. But we don't want to compl- conflate it with second with what you and I may agree about, and we don't want to conflate it with the first-person perspective. So lots of times in a disagreement, if I can simply ask people to move from speaking in third-person absolute truths and into first-person relative truths, subjective experience, subjective perception, there's a lot more space just to exchange points of view. Mm. And, and lots of people in postmodern culture know how to do that. I would venture to say not a lot of people do it well. Right. Well, great point. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, I think we're just beginning to learn it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. And as you mentioned, the I, we, it, a lot of Ken Wilber's work um, is great around that too. Yeah. Yeah. So you started to talk a bit about relative um, experience. And I think that segues nicely into my next question where Mm -hmm. you, it's in the everything and nothing chapter Mm -hmm. and you address what Zen refers to as big mind. And Mm -hmm. um, I also appreciate that you, you know, that others have given it different names and you give the example of Eckhart Tolle calls it presence Ken mm-hmm. Wilber calls it ever-present awareness. Byron mm-hmm. Katie simply calls it reality. Mm-hmm. So I know this is a very tricky topic, you know, to actually mm-hmm. put into words. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we could talk about the importance of cultivating our experience of big mind, mm-hmm. um, of emptiness, of the two truths, I think they're all kind of 
mm-hmm. together in a sort of, if you could talk a little bit about that, um, mm-hmm. I think that'd be great. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so far we've been talking about um, just the challenges of being in relationship and the fact that we have conflicts with one another. And meditation is really designed to teach us, if you will, or to, to show us how to participate in a unified experience in which the dualistic mind, the subject, the object, the you, the me, the this, the that, actually settles down and we can start to feel the well-being that comes from having a kind of experience of the whole, right? So that the, because in a certain way, the, the, the function in human beings, our language function, our linguistic function, our cognition, in a certain way, uh, has created so many amazing things and or has revealed so many amazing things like mathematics and, uh, you know, so many things. At the same time, whenever there is a dualism, there's tension. It it could be creative tension, it could be aggression, whatever it is, but there's tension. So meditation is about quieting that linguistic function, coming into the present moment, opening the senses, stabilizing the mind, and allowing the innate well-being of uh, the meditative state, becoming deeper and deeper that state. And then we can start to perceive wholeness off the cushion. So... There's a quality that you're experiencing wholeness all the time now, even though you're not in a sitting practice. So when a, a conflict comes up, there's a greater space to deal with that conflict. Like It's like, like you were just saying, I can feel my relative position, I can feel yours, and I can feel a greater field in which this conflict is being held. And it just kind of shifts the, the, the possibility or the opportunity, you might say. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's a great explanation. Very user-friendly, so I appreciate okay, that. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> try, to be, try to be user-friendly. I know, it's tricky. Like I said, it's a tough yeah. one to, to put into words, but thank you. That yeah. was great. Okay. So, we've already discussed a little bit about Ken Wilber, yeah. and I'm going to ask you in a minute about the, the recent Fourth Turning Conference that you did, um, but before yeah. we get into that, mm-hmm. I know that his work, as you've already said, it had a big impact in your own spiritual life and understanding and experience. Yeah. So if Absolutely. you can talk a little bit about that, what, uh, how did that help open you up? And I think it's wonderful that you're, you know, a Zen um, practitioner, and um, but you can also look at the Sufis and the Christian mystics and mm-hmm. take it all in. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, um, I met Ken in 2004, and it was a little bit unbidden in the sense that uh, a person that I knew was working with Ken on integral politics. He came to a big mind session that I had set up with my teacher, Genpo Roshi. And then John Kessler was his name, is his name. He, uh, he thought it would be wonderful for Ken and Genpo Roshi to meet. So in 2004, they met, or late 2003. And I was part of that. I was the person that set up that original kind of meeting. And, um, what happened is it changed my practice in a number of kind of substantial ways. One was I had always kind of seen human beings as struggling to awaken spiritually and having these kind of incredible, amazing, beautiful and not doing all that well. You know, there's, if we think about the number of wars on the planet at any one time, if we think about the number of people in poverty, if we think about the degradation of the environment. So what happened was that my my consideration changed because I started to see human beings on the spectrum of 13.8 billion years of evolution 
planet Earth, 4.8 billion years of evolution, human beings, 200,000 years, these sets of spiritual teachings coming into consciousness, well, shamanic understanding coming online anywhere from 20 to 60,000 years ago, and then, uh, you know, Hinduism, Judaism, 10,000, 5,000, and then, you know, Christianity and innovation comes online 3,000 years ago. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, on a spectrum of 13.8 billion years for life to build itself up to this level of complexity and then to, to start to refine itself and to start to understand the principles of the universe, like my whole experience of a struggling spiritual seeker just changed. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, like, we're the latest innovation. And we're, no question, we're, we're in an evolving evolving situation yeah you know and uh but it it just kind of uh it lightened me up mm, that's you know, great to see that yeah, yeah. it's really it's really great it's like i see that you know some people say that the hubble telescope is really sort of the metaphor for human beings to be able to now start to take a perspective not only on ourselves but on our place in the universe mm. and that our play you know like suddenly you know even 50 years ago, people didn't experience themselves on this planet in this solar system. You know, Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson talks about our cosmic address. Yeah. Ken talks about our cosmic address. Like, we're actually seeing ourselves differently. That's a big deal in my mind. It's, it's inspiring. I'm energized because of it. Yeah. Now, the, the Lotus Sutra, I think, suggests a lot of this. You know, these, the great Mahayana Sutras suggest this kind of grand scale but i didn't tend to think in those kinds of grand scales ah and the, yeah that's wonderful how exciting like you said yeah. it's really a, a wonderful time to be alive and yeah, to watch so the unfolding yeah yeah so the, the last thing we'll, we'll discuss then um is so you were just uh you took part in ken's fourth turning conference out mm -hmm. in was it denver i know it's colorado boulder, boulder. It was boulder yeah. in boulder um and i've read uh the ebook i i personally appreciated it deeply. I know there's also, there's um, feedback on both sides. Some people really like it. Some people don't. Um, yeah. So I would love to get your take on it since you're, you're right there and in, in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. If you can talk a bit about what the fourth turning is and your involvement and how you're experiencing it and seeing it. Well, first of all, I'll just locate my cosmic address yeah. you know i'm a i'm a working stiff in the dharma <laughs> i'm not a great realized buddhist teacher nor am i a great scholar sure. nor do i have anything remotely like the genius of ken wilbur so you know the buddhist tradition in ken wilbur let's just say i a lot of homage to that yes to those two those two geniuses so in terms of a historical and a scholarly point of view i think some people argue with this notion of a fourth turning you know is it truly the fourth, is there a fourth turning? Has there already been a fourth turning? Why even use that particular language? I think the reason that Ken uses that language is because turning itself implies evolution. It implies change. There's a dynamic quality to turning. When in your life did you turn towards something? When did you turn away from something? In Zen, we talk about a turning word. So the word turning has historical resonance. It may, for some people, not land quite accurately. Some people say the three turnings really apply to the Mahayana tradition yeah. in terms of the original set of Buddhist teachings, then uh, the Nagarjuna's insights and the form is emptiness and the inclusion of samsara in nirvana, the third turning, Ken places it with Yogacara within the Mahayana tradition, which um, to some degree, I guess, would describe the way in which the recognition of emptiness or consciousness 
something or nothing, how it actually becomes manifest and enacted, perhaps, in the world, which you find in Zen. It's not called a turning, but there's definitely that sense of, of dynamic uh, manifestation that it's not enough to realize. Realization must be manifested. So that's my very, very uh, naive understanding of those three turnings. So I think what we could safely say is that there's an encounter of, the, of Buddha Dharma, the great wisdom tradition of Buddhism with the West. And anybody who is practicing Buddhism knows that change is afoot. You know, yeah. modernity is affecting Buddhism. All the brain science that's online, Rick Hansen's books, all the, his holiness talking, his mind science institute. So science is affecting us. That We know that's happening. You know, postmodernism is affecting how Buddhist practice is happening. You know, women are now sitting in zendos with men. That's having an effect. I'm sorry, it just is, you know. On, on an absolute level, of course, it's empty. But on a relative level, you know, if you bring women into leadership or you bring women, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done that say, says around the world, if you put money into the hands of women, it goes more directly into the hands of children. That's a big deal if you're a person doing international development. You want to know that. Mm. So, Modern influences, postmodern influences. The fourth turning is really a description, I think, of, of Ken's label for the encounter of, of Asian uh, Buddha Dharma with the West. And it's been going on now since the late, 18, late 1800s, as we know. And there was a big flowering of Buddha Dharma. And now it's, you know, Buddha Dharma is everywhere. And mindfulness is on the cover of the New York Times and Time magazine. So it's, you know, we're in it. Now, is it presumptuous to describe a historical turning when you're in it? That's, a, that's another complaint people would make, is like, how much hubris does that take? Well, from one point of view, yes, because you can't know. You can only know it retrospectively. But what's subtle and what's beautiful is human beings are only capable of seeing themselves as part of evolution now. Darwin was 150 years ago. Understanding the Big Bang is 40 to 50 years old at the most. So experiencing ourselves in a process of evolution actually deserves to be noted. Not in terms of the hubris of a historical movement, but rather, what does it mean to feel ourselves in this question? And I would venture to say, at least in America, that every person who's teaching Zen or teaching Tibetan Buddhism or even Vipassana made very strong decisions around how to work with this encounter early on. Mm -hmm. So we're all living it. Do we agree with the language of it? Maybe not, but we're all living it. And will we know what it is? No, we can't because we're in it. It's a first person, not a second person. Yeah. So I always have people say, where is the first per turning in your life? When did you empty out and become free? When did your compassion come online? How are you manifesting in the, this in the world? And how are you holding the questions of this great encounter between East and West? Mm. So Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I, uh, you can tell I've thought about it. <laughs> yes, you have. And I, I appreciate that very thoughtful response. Thank you so yeah. much, Diane. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you're on retreat now. Is Do you have any other upcoming events that you'd like to share with viewers? Or where can people find you to check out what you have going on online? Any Anything you'd like to share with them? Yeah, thanks for that question. Well, I really, I really, um, I'm going to be at Harvard uh, next week. Cool. So if you're in the Boston area, there's a, uh, an event at Samadhi. 
um, which is an integral uh, salon. So if you're on the East Coast and you want to come to that, check out Samadhi online. I think it's on Thursday night next week. And then we have the integral living room in Boulder. And that really is a, we have a view that conversations are ontological objects and to have new conversations actually creates new realities. So we have this thing called the integral living room and Ken will be there and that's at the end of May in Boulder. And uh, you can find that online. And then I do a big event in the summer called Three Faces of Spirit. The first week is uh, complete Zen practice. The second week is all relational and intimacy practice with a little bit of sexuality, just enough not to cause a scandal. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the third week is nature-based mysticism practices. Sounds great. So those are the ones I would shout out. Yeah, awesome. Well, Diane, yeah. thank you so much for your time. It's been a sincere pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for all the work you bring into the world. It's definitely greatly appreciated on many levels. My so pleasure. I, I thank you very all right. much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.